Hello, this is James, and you're listening to Right on Track Podcast, which is almost as splendid as my red paint. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon from wherever you are in the world, and welcome to episode 65 of the Right on Track Podcast. My name is Connor Jonas, and I will be your anchor for today's episode. In the reviews, you'll be listening to Parry and myself as we continue through Series 8. Then assisting me is returning guest host AP, otherwise known as Mitch, as we interview Series 1 model maker Christopher Knowlton. Then you'll listen in to Lachlan as he continues his interview with Brendan Rise 10. But right now, we're going to the reviews, where I am once more joined by Parry. It's Parry here. Yes, I'm back. I'm doing the reviews once again. Yes. Hooray. I'm here as well. Oh, oh and, that, uh, and that's the voice of Connor, who's joining me, my regular co-reviewer here on this segment of Right On Track. Yes. Today we're reviewing two more wonderful episodes from Series 8, including Don't Tell Thomas and Emily's New Route. And, Parry, mm-hmm. what are we going to be hearing in the clip? Well, uh, I don't know. Let's just play the clip and see what happens. As he puffed towards the station, he saw Harold the helicopter talking to Toby. They were planning a thank-you surprise for Thomas. Hello, he chuffed. Remember, said Harold, don't tell Thomas about the surprise. Then Harold buzzed away, and Toby puffed back to his yard. Thomas felt left out. He liked surprises. Of course we had that clip lined up. You know, we are professionals. Yeah, we do tell we each do. other. We do. But as you just heard, of course, that was Harold the Helicopter talking to Toby, whose voice we didn't actually hear in that clip. But I assure you, in the original story, he is very much clear and present. And Thomas is there as well, who overheard the tail end of a conversation, and well, all they heard really was don't tell Thomas about the surprise. He doesn't know the surprises for him, and he doesn't know why he's not being told about it, which I absolutely hate, Connor, because oh, no. there, is, there is one trope that annoys me, the surprise that's happening, and the person who is supposed to be surprised is the one who doesn't learn about it, and the other character's in keeping it a secret from that person, end up upsetting them. No, that's fair. It, it, it's, that it's a, is a horrible it trope. It is a horrible and trope. there's another one. There's another horrible trope where people only hear one part of a conversation and assume everything else. Well, yes, that is also an awful trope. But the reason why I bring up the, like, don't tell X about the surprise trope is because it's everywhere. It's in every single children's movie and children's television show and it's just we've heard this moral before and there is rarely ever a situation in real life where it applies to you i mean in the case where a surprise is being set up you would go about it discreetly and 
you know, yeah. have these conversations out of their earshot. And as well as that, you wouldn't do anything to draw attention to this fact. And, yeah. and if there so, was... Okay, this is what happens in our family household. In the Parry household, if there is a surprise and someone cottons onto it, we are told that it's supposed to be a surprise... And but then you would go, but then it's not a surprise anymore. Well, the idea is if you tell someone that you're planning something, then at least they don't get suspicious of you. Mm. Furthermore, in, in the later part of the episode, Tom, it's revealed that Thomas isn't upset that he doesn't know what the surprise is. It's he's upset that he was being excluded from what he just assumed was a surprise for someone else. That's it. He, he he wasn't going, oh, they're making a surprise for me, but I don't like surprises. I want to know. It's, I don't want to be left out. And, and this episode, it it, whew, it really does batter that trope. It really does. I tell you... It, it, it be, it's a home run for it. Uh, the, the only thing that would make this story more annoying is if they threw in the cliches of the pregnant woman whose waters break at the most inconvenient time. Fair. And an enemy's turned lover's trope as well. If they had those two in there, it would be the trifecta, and I'm like, that's it, I'm out, no. Yeah, that, that is, the worst thing is, that is going to be, like, the movie bestseller. <laughs> With all those tropes together. Yes, it is. Well, the reason why they're throwing a party for Thomas, of course, is because he's been clearing all the snow for everybody. And as we know from previous stories... Thomas the Tank Engine hates the snow, he hates his snowplow, he hates having to clear it, but the engines know this and they're very grateful for it, which is why they're organising the party to surprise him. And as Thomas goes about his day, he of course overhears the conversation that we just heard too, he sees Percy with a trucks full of presents, wrapped presents, and of course he can't tell Thomas because he's got to keep it a secret or a surprise. And then Thomas sees Emily with a Christmas tree. However, he can't tell it's a Christmas tree because it's covered. Of course, yes. Yeah, so it will, it's something under a tarp, but it's obvious to us it's a tree, right? So Thomas follows Emily, but Emily runs, well, Emily avoids him through the magic of points. That's really the best way of describing it. Yeah. And that evening, as Thomas arrives at the shed, uh, he finds that the engines are still talking about the surprise and he's like, oh, I'm getting sick of this and runs away. And then it's left to Harold to go and find Thomas and he tells Thomas, the surprise is meant to be for you. Yeah, you're supposed to collect the children from the station with Annie and Clarabelle and then they will take you to where the surprise is. And I will say the surprise, it's a real letdown. It's just... A tiny tree in a tiny village, uh, and they give Thomas some tinsel to wrap around him, and the children uh, collect their presents and unwrap them, and really? That's the surprise they're going for? Yeah. Yeah, it's not so much a surprise for Thomas. It's a surprise for the children, and Thomas is just, like, rusty. Yeah, of course, that that wouldn't be a very catchy episode title, though, would it? Yeah. (laughs) Thomas takes a normal train that's a surprise for children, but he doesn't even know about it, and he gets very sad. By Paul Larson, which this episode is by. Surely, if it was a surprise for Thomas, it would be involving his friends, you know, the people who have set this up for him, 
Or it would be something like a new coat of paint, or fresh coal, or a new headlamp even. I mean, that would be a pleasant surprise, surely. How about he like gets back to the sheds, and it's been done up with all this bunting hmm. and everything. Like his birth at the shed has been decorated hmm, that for him. sounds vaguely similar to a previous Thomas story, though. Yes, but listen, if we're on the topic of tropes... Heck, you, you, you said a few episodes back that Edward's trucks running away from him is now a trope of a close shave. So, like, I mean, I, I feel everything's... You know what? This episode's got Thomas in it. It's a trope. <laughs> it, it's, it's all a trope. Okay, Connor. I don't know the meaning of the word. But th- this episode, it once again falls into the category of it looks amazing. Visually, it does some really cool things. You know, the music is really well done in times. Story-wise, a little bit of an asterisk next to it. It's okay. No, I, I wouldn't even go as far as saying it's okay. I'd go it's pretty bland. But <laughs> the, the visuals do look nice. This is another story set during the winter time, And as you would know from listening to our previous 64 episodes of the podcast. We love the Island of Sodor at winter, particularly with that beautiful blue backdrop. Uh, and of course, it's set during Christmas as well, so there's a slight Christmas vibe to it. Uh, the Christmas village is pretty quaint, but it has a charm to it. You know, it's this very small village which bears a resemblance to the one that Oliver had his accident in back in Series 7. Series 7? Yeah, remember when Oliver, Oliver's snowman or something, what's it called? Oh, yes, yes. Got it, got it. I thought you were referring to the small station and tea room back in Oliver's Find. No, I was not referring to that, but um, good on you for remembering that story. It is a good one. <laughs> um Fair, and and there are some really clever things done with it. Because on the topic of snow, how we all love the snow, this is the first time that we actually see engines move large amounts of snow. It opens right up with Thomas ploughing through snowdrift, and it looks amazing. Mm. The, the snowdrifts are really big compared to the engines, and we've never seen them that large before. And if we have, the engines aren't moving through it like we see Thomas do. Yeah, they're trapped in it. Yeah. This time, Thomas is actually ploughing through it, and we see all the tiny bits of... I'm assuming it's tiny cut-out bits of paper flying everywhere. Hmm. As it's pushed aside, which is brilliant. However, it does make me hungry, because it bears a resemblance to shredded coconut. Okay. Okay, that's an interesting distinction to make, but um, anyway... On the topic of the little Christmas village, though... Yes. Would you believe me if I were to say that's the capital of Sodor? No, I would not. No, you wouldn't. So, the station is unnamed. However, according to several sources, including the wiki at some points, that is Suddery Station. There is no way that's Suddery. I'm sorry. Which we've seen a few times throughout the show. But Suddery? No. Don't believe that. If that was Suttery, it would be a much larger station and a much larger village. Yes, Suttery is supposed to be the capital of the island, yet here it is, a single platform, a single track, 
Bob's your uncle. Yeah, uh, mind you, maybe we have this very outdated idea as to what a capital could be, because when we think of a capital city, we think of places like, for instance, London or Paris or Beijing. But oftentimes a capital can be smaller than the major population centres. For instance, Australia's capital, Canberra, that, that's where we come from, Australia, it's only has a couple of hundred thousand people, whereas Sydney has as many as five million or six million people in its greater surroundings. That is a fair note. Mm-hmm. But I've got one more note before you continue okay. on, Connor. Uh, do, are you aware of what the capital of the state of California is? Oh, oh, are you going to throw me through the trick here? Because it's one, it's not the other. Yes, I am. Yes. I, I I feel like I'm going to fall into the mistake. Uh, well, do, do it anyway. Come on. I'm hesitantly going to say San Fran. Oh, oh, good guess. But no, it's actually Sacramento. Yeah, yeah. that That's that's a place, isn't it? it? It is a place, yes. And it is significantly smaller than not only San Francisco, but also Los Angeles. Ah. So it, it's not one. It's not the other. It's the third option. I completely forgot about. Um but on that note, I would like to say, since we're on the the topic of now challenging capital cities in geography, a lot of those smaller capital cities are often engineered cities, as in they were made to be the capital and exclusively the capital. Yeah, Canberra is an example of that. Washington, yep. D.C. is an example of that. Yeah, or it may be the case that... When it was first made the capital, it was it was a massive population centre. However, due to various uh, economic changes and jobs throughout the region, other areas of uh, control became more populous, yet it still retained the title of capital. Yes, and we do know from the book So Law Its People, Its Railways and Its History that Tidmouth is actually the financial capital, the major population centre, and that's followed closely behind by Knapford. So, maybe this is the Suttery. Maybe. This is the capital. Maybe it is, but I don't believe it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I really don't believe it either. It, it, it doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. Lower Suttery is a much bigger station, and I would be more content with believing that's the capital, but uh, that station itself just doesn't fit. Uh, speaking of things that doesn't fit, don't fit, rather, uh, there is a line in here when Thomas meets Emily, and it is the aforementioned scene where she's got the truck on the flatbed, but we don't know it's a truck because it's hidden by tarp. The truck or the tree? The, the, tr- the tree, which is on the truck. And we don't know that it's a tree because it's hidden by tarp. Correct, yes, thank you for the clarification, Connor, but as I was saying... Uh, Thomas asks Emily, is that part of the surprise? And Emily goes, that is for me to know and you to find out, which is completely out of character. Is it? Yes, it is. Like, I mean, I, I, I feel Emily can be a bit snooty at times. I've never, never got that sense watching any of her stories. She's never come across as snooty to me. And besides, if she knows it's, the surprise for Thomas, why would she be so rude about it? Maybe she's mad because Harold said in clear view and earshot of Thomas, don't tell Thomas. 
only provoking Thomas's attention that there was a surprise. Oh, no, no, more to the point after that. Thomas is with Annie and Clarabel, right? But he decides to follow Emily, just completely disregarding his duties. And in the end, it's the signalman who switches the points and allows him to continue on his way. Yeah, sorry, we're jumping a bit all over the place with this episode. I haven't finished yet. Hold on. There's also, of course, the scene with Thomas running away. Yeah, fair. Did, did fair. he do that on his own accord or were his driver and fireman evolved? Uh, Which brings I've us back no to the age-old question. Where does the people end and the machine start? Yes, correct. It hurts my brain, man. <laughs> but on the note of the scene where Thomas follows Emily. Yes. I do really like that sequence. Because normally throughout the show, it's it's full of narration and music in the background. and There's typically some kind of loud thing happening. However, with that... It's just, we see Emily moving across, and then we see Thomas following behind her. It's almost very tiptoe music, and it's quiet, it's hushed, even the narration's a little bit hushed as well. And all of a sudden, Emily's suddenly about to go down the other line, and Thomas is unable to follow. Wah, wah. The, the music works so well there. But I'd like to say that both Thomas and Emily are about to be written up for breaking signalling protocol. Oh, that they are, Yes. But because first, at the signal where Thomas and Emily meet, Emily's flatbed passes the signal. That it does, correct. It's it's like the solid line uh, pedestrian crossings. You can't go by it. But then, even after that, when Emily goes off, Thomas decides to follow Emily mm-hmm. in extremely close distance. Yes. I think we may have encountered the first extremely competent signalman on Sodor. Hooray! Not not only did he do his job, such as diverting a runaway, but he saw that Thomas was on the wrong line, Emily needed to go down this line, and he managed to skillfully move the points in time. So, bravo to the signalman. Hooray, well done. But, yeah, the, the writing this episode's weird in a lot of places. The characters feel off nearly everywhere. Just about, yeah. The only one I felt that was in keeping with their spirit was Edward. Edward or perhaps Percy. Oh, yeah, Percy to an extent too. Because Percy was like, I want to tell him, but I can't. That feels very Percy to me. My favourite part of this episode, my my absolute favourite part, is the period between after Thomas has finished following Emily... And when Thomas is found by Harold after he's run away. Because that sequence of shots is the best amount of lighting that we've had in the show. Mm, there's this very nice yellowish, orangish glow to it. And um, it, it bathes the engines at the roundhouse. No, not just that. It's more complex than that. It, it is? Really? Yeah. So, you need to look at very much the wider picture here. So, of course, during the day, it's bright white lighting everywhere. The sun is bouncing off the white snow. Everything's very well lit up. The first scene at the sheds, with the engines there, James says, shh. Henry goes, don't tell Thomas. Come on, Henry, don't say that when Thomas is arriving. Yes. Thomas arrives at the shed, and it is that nice yellow light. Okay, the shadows are very long. The sun is obviously starting to set. Important to note that the lights, the light poles around the shed aren't turned on. Right. However, 
when Thomas's run away and we next return to the sheds, it's darker even still. Mm-hmm, that now, it is. there's no yellow glow. It's, I'd almost say, a purple glow in the twilight period as the sun's going down and the light poles are turned on and Edward tells Harold to go off. And then we transition purely from the bright white day through the yellow sunset, the purple twilight to the black night. And we just see Thomas all alone by a signal box with a singular light above him from a nearby light pole. I I just realized you're referring to the lamps, which are situated beside it. I thought you meant like the lighting of the, the, the production crew. Oh, the, the lighting of the production crew as well. well but the, 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 there's an entire sequence there where we go from day to sunset to twilight to night. And it's brilliantly done with the backdrops and the lighting and the little details throughout. It, it's brilliant passage of time. Without saying it's getting later. Yes. Excellent. Show, don't tell people. Remember. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I just realized I'm parry. Yes. What's that? We're a podcast. We can only tell. We can't show. (laughs) (laughs) Disregard what we said. Keep listening to us telling. Yes. But yes, this episode, it falls failure to, it looks great. The story is what drags it down. I'm sensing a consistent pattern with your reviews, Connor. I I, I will say, uh, sadder still, this is Harold's only appearance in the eighth series. Uh, However, this is also the only episode in the eighth series without Sir Topham Hatt. So, in series eight, you could clearly go, have you ever seen Harold and Sir Topham Hatt in the same room? Big brain moment. (laughs) Well, bring us to the ratings, I feel. Hmm. And I want you to go first. Okay. I'm giving it three out of ten. Well, that was consistent. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, concise. we've covered everything. I like the winter setting. Uh, but, but, but other than that, yeah, the writing's a real letdown. Yeah. Uh, winter setting, the the shredded coconut. The Just the lighting works so well. And the music during that following sequence brilliant but the the writing really needed to be stronger uh my apologies to paul larson not your greatest work uh so for that i'm going to rate this a four okay then and i should mm. also mention as well that the modeling particularly with that village at the end of the story it is actually quite good so you know oh yeah 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 it's beautiful it's, it's beautiful got, it's got some stuff going for it uh connor have you got a clever segue for our next story that we're going to cover Well, from Emily running away from Thomas to Emily running away from a monster, we transition to Emily's new route, or new route, or new route. Just say route, Connor, okay? Route? Yes. Emily stopped to fill up with water on the way to the flour mill, but James was already there. The fat controller has given me the flour mill special, said Emily. You're lucky, James huffed. I have to do the Black Lock run. Why don't you like going to Black Lock? asked Emily. There are boulders all over the tracks, he moaned. They bash your buffers and scratch your paint. And... 
There's the Black Lock Monster. What's the Black Lock Monster? Nobody knows, said James. Black figures move in the water, then disappear. And he puffed away. What is it with locks and monsters, Connor? Uh, Nessie. Uh, yeah, yes, I know. And, but because, and because everyone, everyone associates Loch Ness with the monster, suddenly every other lock needs to be associated with a monster too. Even in Thomas and Friends, Castle Lock from Series 7, that has a monster. And now Black Lock, here in this story, also has a monster of some sort. Well, well th- this, of course, brings up the question, is Blacklock the same lock as Castle Lock and Bad Day as Castle Lock? Well, we, we know it's not because it's a completely different setting. Oh, maybe it's behind it. That, mm... Other side. Because in Bad Day at Castle Lock, we did see that there were two paths to go. One way, which was around the lock, and one across the Castle Lock causeway. That is a very good point, but no, they're still different places. They look completely different, therefore they are different. Right. So, uh, Emily's new route by James Mason. Uh, new routes are being opened around the island. Uh, are these new lines, or are they just like a new path for engines to take on the line with different stops and different journeys and different trains? That's a good question, and it is never answered. Yeah, it it appears to be that there are, like, now just special services. Specifically, Emily has been tasked to take the Flour Mill Special. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, James, as you heard, is taking the the Black Lock Run. Yes. So, it may be just, like, in a grand marketing scheme, Sir Topham Hatt has named every single, like, train that the engines take throughout the day. So it's like, oh, I'm on the flour mill special. Everyone turns their heads and go, how prestigious bread. <laughs> but uh, despite how prestigious the flour mill special sounds, the job for Emily is to simply go to the flour mill, pick up trucks of flour and take them to Napford. Yes. And that contrasts with James's journey where he has to do the Black Lock run. And uh, what's so dangerous about it apparently is the huge boulders all over the tracks that bash your buffers and scratch your paint and then of course there is the monster in the lake as i mentioned earlier yes however we don't get to black lock until a little while we, we start off first with the flour mill special that emily takes where emily collects the trucks full of flour and trucks being troublesome They cause trouble. They put on their brakes. They slow Emily down so that Emily arrives late at Knapford, meaning that there will be no fresh bread the next day. Or, as Sir Topham Hatt puts it, this means I won't have any toast or crumpage for breakfast. Oh, he's as bad as the station master's wife. (laughs) Which is sort of downplaying the fact that no one will have any fresh bread for their toast or crumpets for breakfast. Yeah, it's it's not just Sir Topham, it's everybody. (laughs) Yeah. He won't be able um, to cook more breakfast because he won't have any breakfast. Yeah. But then the next day, Emily is taking the flour mill special again. And she only brings half the train because only half of it was coupled up. And whose fault is that? The shunter? Yes, correct. The the, the shunter? Yeah, okay. Not the signalman, yes, the shunter. That's the exactly. It's the shunter's fault. The shunter should have secured the load properly. 
Or it could be that Emily left too quickly. But there's no one there. <sighs> yes. No, uh, so, sorry, the, we... I should clarify. The argument I was making was that we didn't see any visible human figures and therefore we can assume that there was nobody there to properly couple Emily to the train. Shunt up the trucks. Mm, that That's too true. And uh, following the rule of three for Emily's Flower Mail special, first time you're running late, second time you only bring half the train, the third time when Emily returns to bring the remaining half of the train she left behind, uh, she sinks it into a duck pond. Duck pond? Duck, duck pond. pond. Wank, wank. Which, and derails, which it's also the first time Emily's ever been seen derailed in the show. First accident. It's Emily's first proper accident. Yeah, first proper accident where Emily's been, uh... Emily's had a few scrapes before. Emily's first day, Emily saved all of them. Yes, but she she didn't cause an accident. She prevented one. Uh, but, But this is the first time Emily's been derailed and properly damaged. And this means that Sir Topham decides, well... Now you're going to take the Black Clock run instead of James. Which is supposed to be a punishment, but as... Um, it's a passenger train? Yes, it's a passenger service, that, which it, it, takes children along the line. I mean, why, why does James not like it? Because of the monster. But he never... He, has he witnessed the monster? Or is it just a fable that he's heard? He he may have seen some things in the water before there. Maybe he saw Harvey with a breakdown crane. Um, that, that's a possibility, yes. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it's a rare occasion when a special passenger train is what the engines are trying to get out of instead of the goods train. Regardless, Emily is now given a passenger train and is terrified of Black Lock. Deciding to pull an ex machina, stops in the track looking over the Black Lock seeing the cast on the background and boulders fall down, blocking the line, which was foreshadowed by James earlier. Yes, it was indeed. And also, most convenient that she stopped to be afraid of Black Lock, because otherwise she would have been crushed under the weight of all those rocks. Yeah, and and, and the the children would have been hurt as well. I would assume so, yes. Or, or possibly, Connor, maybe Emily's driver and fireman noticed that there was going to be a rock fall, so that's why they stopped. Maybe they saw uh, fog detonators in the lineup ahead. That's a... <laughs> okay, that, that is a possibility, but it's a very, very, very unlikely one. Maybe they were just admiring the view. Or maybe they were doing that, yes. B- b- because Black Lock, as far as sets go, is really pretty. Look, honestly, I think this is what really sells this story for me. It's that particular set... There, you've got the beautiful white cliffs in the background, you've got the shiny lake, you've got the castle over the, in the distance. It, yeah, it looks fantastic. I'm amazed they didn't use this set more, to be honest. Mm. And, and now, you mentioned the castle in the distance. Mm-hmm. Now, do you remember before when I asked if Black Lock is the same lock as Castle Lock and Bad Day as Castle Lock? Oh, are you going to tell me that it's the exact same castle? Well, I'm fairly sure Blacklock is the same lock as Castle Lock, because Low Look, located atop the hillock, a castle lifted above the landscape that looks alike the landlord's Lord Callan's landing, Callan Castle, above a lake. A lock, leading me to conclude that Blacklock and Castle Lock are the same lock as seen in Bad Day at Castle Lock. That sounded rehearsed. It was rehearsed. <laughs> there we are, I thought as much. <laughs> but it, it is, it's the exact same castle set. It's another lock. And... 
What kind of a name for a lock, a lake, is castle? Like, True, like actually, having the point. name of Black Lock in regards to the deep jet black murky water is so much more fitting. Mm. And, and it's even confirmed on uh, like wiki pages, which wiki pages, people put it all together, but it would make sense. The two locks on Sodor with a castle that looks the same have got a monster rumor around it. It, it just makes sense. If you say so. And, and what of the monster, Connor? Do we learn whether there is a monster or not? Well, depending on your perspective of monster, if you're perhaps a tuna or a sardine, <laughs> there's definitely a monster in Black Lock. However, as it's revealed to Emily, seeing the movement in the water, that is not Harvey in the Breakdown Crane, but a family of seals. This confuses me. I mean, can seals live in freshwater lakes? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, they can. Right. Yes. In, in, in fact, the the assumed origin for this story, the Loch Ness Monster on Loch Ness, uh, one of the most common theories was seals living in it. Aha. Uh-huh. But did we, anyone we, ever spot a seal living in the loch? They may have, but it may have been the actual Loch Ness Monster. Hmm. They just, they thought they saw a seal, but lo and behold, it was the actual Loch Ness Monster. Hmm. Uh, However, as of a 2018 DNA test that was done on the banks in the water, uh, they found no seal DNA in Loch Ness, but it's extremely likely that the Loch Ness Monster was actually a giant eel. There was plenty of eel DNA. An eel, okay. Yes, yes, which we do know if you read the extended railway series books by Christopher Audrey, that eels do exist on and around Sodor. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, maybe these aren't seals, but actually very well-evolved eels with an S in front of them. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a bit of a long bow there, Connor, I a think. S- eels <laughs> <sighs> finish the story by Emily realising that uh, A there is no monster and B the route is not so bad it's beautiful it's beautiful and that's it what did, what, 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 what did we learn Connor what did we learn from this story that for breakfast Sir Topham likes to have some toast and crumpets okay what else did we learn um the Black Lock and Castle Lock are the same lock as in, in Bad Day at Castle Lock. That's disputed, but I'll, I'll let it slide for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that in some deleted scenes, Salty was supposed to make an appearance. Aha! Now, that is an interesting fact. Mmm. So, uh, there are multiple deleted scenes for this episode. Some of them are showing Salty trying to cheer up Emily, presumably with some stories or sage advice from the withered diesel about the monster maybe instead of james telling emily about the monster of castle lock black lock it was salty instead which would play in a lot more to the theory that it is the same location okay and other deleted scenes also show 
the Red Balloon making a few appearances. Oh, now that would have really made the story special. I would have loved to have seen that. There's a brilliant shot uh, still that show Thomas and Emily overlooking Blacklock and the castle in the background, and you can just see the red balloon drifting by. Correct me if I'm wrong, Connor, but isn't there also a deleted scene from this story where Gordon and Percy are overlooking a red balloon as Emily uh, travels by? You are correct. There is another deleted scene. Um, However, that just seems to be in the main line. Uh, Because there are too many tracks for it to be the same location as Black Lock, which means that maybe the Red Balloon was supposed to have an involvement in the story. There there, there are so many little pieces about this that we don't know. Maybe James wasn't supposed to be involved at all. Possibly. And was supposed to be Salty taking up that point. But to me, this story very much feels like they did a rule of three, with Emily taking the flour mill special. And then they realised that they still had five minutes of the episode left that they needed to make up. So they just copied and pasted Bad Day at Castle Lock, and they just exchanged the Scottish engines. Which, like, the similarities for the second part of Emily's New Route and Bad Day at Castle Lock, it's glaring. It's Scottish engine taking train knowing that there's a monster there, Stopping because they're scared, Rockslide comes and traps them, and then they see what they assume is the monster, but it's not. Hmm. Which means that we've now had two stories of Scottish engines encountering a monster in the lock. All we need is Duncan to make an appearance there. Which I encourage anyone listening to this to write a story about Duncan going to Castle Black Lock. Oh, I thought you were foreshadowing there, Connor. I assumed for one second there was actually a monster-related story with Duncan. Ah, well, you can sort of count Duncan gets spooked, but that Mm. wasn't at Castle Lock. No. It needs to be at Castle Lock to to fulfil the Scottish special. Which I'm honestly surprised that I've spoken about the Scots so many times, and I haven't done the accent like, oh, there it goes. Get in my belly. (laughs) Not an Austin Powers fan, Connor? Oh, I am an Austin Powers fan. I'm just... I'm thinking about the poor editor. Yes. (laughs) Having to endure all this. Uh, Yeah, we've spent far too much time on these two stories. So, quick, Connor, score for Emily's New Route. I do love the setting of Black Lock. I do sort of like the storyline that's going on with uh, the Flower Mill special... However, they're not connected in any way. Okay. The, the entirety of the Flower Mill special just serves as a series of events to lead into a copy of Bad Day at Castle Lock. However, it visually does look great. And it's good to get another Emily story out there that shows a bit more of Emily's character, despite how copy-pasted it may be. So with that, I'm... It's gonna be a four. Okay. I am going to give it a 3.5. Oh, it's not a 3. Okay, there's a difference. There is a slight difference. And I think it's that black lock setting that sets it apart. I I do love the way they've decorated the set. I love the rock formation in the background, especially. Kind of just occurs to me, it looks a bit like El Capitan. 
Al Capitan? Yeah, you, you know, the huge bare-faced rock formation that's in Yosemite National Park. Ah, oh, I've never been. Ah, well, I know you've never been, but surely you've seen it in, say, one of the Gran Turismo video games or in one of those rock climbing documentaries that they pull, you know, distribute every year. I, like, like maybe I, I, I really don't play too many racing video games, man. Mm, all right, well, j- just, just I, I used to do some rock climbing, but I, I, I never. I'm trains my thing, man. I'm I'm kind of train time all the way down. They don't call it rock climbing anymore, do they? They call it free climbing. Is that right? And then free climbing because sometimes it's not rocks. Anyways, <clears throat> yes, three point five out of ten for me, and a four out of ten for you for Emily's new route. Uh, so yeah, yeah, and that brings us to the end of the reviews for today. So I've been Connor. I've been Parry, and we'll see you around next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Ken Bianco Jr. from Train World, where we have the greatest selection of model trains and train sets. We also are proud to carry Bachman's full line of Thomas & Friends products. With a large variety of different brands and scales, we have the best items for your model train collection. You can find Train World on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can see our latest products and even be invited to all our events like Thomas Tuesdays. Visit trainworld.com today to find your next addition to your model railroad journey. Last week, Denim interviewed Mike O'Donnell, one of the composers for the early seasons of the show. And moving from audio to the visual... This week, myself and returning guest host AP are interviewing a model maker who's assisted in the pilot episode and the earliest seasons of the show. So, without further ado, introducing Mr. Christopher Knowlton. Welcome to the Ride on Track podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You got your first big break in the film television industry in the early 1980s, when you joined the team at Shepperton Studios making props and models for animated TV commercials. Where did this love and interest for model making start? Um, I guess really it goes back to the days where I was uh, a young lad in London growing up watching all of those old Jerry Anderson TV shows, um, such as Stingray, Thunderbirds, um, Captain Scarlet. Um, and you may remember they all featured these Super Marionation puppets that were... Um, yes. You know, great, they, they were all a great success, each and every series. But the, the amazing miniature effects that, that featured in, in, in all of those shows uh, just had a real impact on me. Um, and you probably know they were directed by a very famous special effects director called Derek Meddings, mm. who went on to work on the Bonds and various other movies. Um but seeing his work and, and obviously, you know, the crew that, that were assisting him, it just inspired me as a young boy um, just to build my own spaceships. Oh, uh, that's mainly amazing. Out of, yeah, mainly out of stuff lying around the flat, really. I mean, I'd get my mum and, and a lot of the neighbours on, on the council estate I grew up on to save me um, old discarded uh, washing up liquid bottles and any any other interesting sort of product pack- packaging that I think I could sort of, you know, fashion into into a spaceship. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's where it sort of really started. 
a group of friends and myself, we started to make little Super 8 films. So we'd shoot these, um, these model spaceships flying around on, on, against star backgrounds and landing on alien planets and, and such like. And, um, and then a teacher, an amazing English teacher called Mr. Alan Benson, I've got to really name check him. He, he was a fantastic teacher. Without us knowing, um, he, he used to let us um, film in the uh, in, in the school classrooms after hours when the school closed. But w- without us knowing, he'd actually contacted um, Jerry Anderson down at Pinewood and Bray Studios um, and arranged for us to go along and see them filming uh, Space 1999. Oh, that's fantastic. Which was, it was just an incredible experience. And, and looking back, um, it was really a turning point for me because that, that visit turned, you know, a, a dream into a reality, really. Mm. Um, I was actually there, you know, in an actual film studio um, where it was all going on. Um, and, and it was a wonderful day in general. We met Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, the husband and wife stars of the show. And uh, then after leaving Pinewood, we popped down to Bray Studios just to meet the special effects director, Brian Johnson, who looked at our, our sort of uh, very amateurish Super 8 footage and gave us a lot of uh, kind words and, and uh, you know, such like. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really where it sort of started and how it sort of led me to getting closer to entering the industry. And then from that, you just sort of continued making those models. I did, yeah, I did. I, I literally the day, well, the the evening I came back from that trip, I was straight back in the bedroom, uh, working on 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 more models and just to, almost like raising my game, really. You know, trying to having seen the the uh, Eagle transporters and a lot of the, the the big model sets down at Bray, so I, I really got to know the guys at Clearwater uh, very well, and um, and they they asked me and a few other uh, model makers I was with to uh, to come down and join them so um and for me that would get me closer to the filming side of things so so i i took the opportunity which was which was you know wonderful and this was just before thomas started so i i sort of set about working on various other animated tv commercials with them incidentally what i didn't realize before going down there was that a lot of the guys who who ran that company um worked on many of those old anderson shows that were such an inspiration to me so I got to meet uh, David Mitten, who I'm sure you know all about, <laughs> and and his his partner Ken Turner that directed a few episodes of UFO, uh, Dave Lane that directed uh, the Thunderbirds uh, movie, uh, Alan Berry, and another effects guy called Bill Camp. So it was just amazing to be down there and just seeing all my heroes. Mm. Really, um, it, was, it was such an inspiration. You were working on a project with those people that very much built your childhood. Yes. And, and like, I mean, it's going to sound very corny, but it's almost gone full circle because I know for Mitch and I now, your work on Thomas was our childhood. And here we are now working and having this interview with you. I guess, I guess so. That's That's really... Yeah, that, what a what a wonderful thing to say. Yes, I guess it, it it's it's that sort of thing happening again, mm. isn't it? I, I guess in a way it's a little bit different considering Connor's Connor's in the arts and I'm doing ra- railway work, ironically. But uh, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> mm. right. um, now, Mitch Christopher, um, when we first brought Mitch onto the podcast, 
He arrived with tons of old 10 mil models. <laughs> so uh, he, he, he's sort of a resident model maker, uh, so to speak, along with Lachlan, uh, another member of the podcast. Uh, so I'll have Mitch take the next question. Well, I'll, I'll say this, Chris. Um, essentially, a lot of a lot of us are purchasing older 10 mil kits and trying to recreate what you guys ended up doing very much on that that early part of the show. So just finding you know matching carriages and you know the stuff that you guys would have just picked out from 10 mil. It's it, it's it's an interesting sort of um, walkthrough, but uh, yeah. In in regards to Thomas, considering we're at that point now, um, it's uh, we we've noticed that um, through other interviews that you've uh, sculpted um, little references into some of the figurines, stuff like um, Alec Guinness and well Ringo and Margaret Rutherford. Um, it was there any. Um, any other sort of references that uh, we're not aware of? Um, not really, no. They, they were the sort of main ones I guess you could identify if you, if you look closely uh, with, with some of those old, old film stars. Um, after sort of doing those, I then sort of really set about creating characters of my own, you know. just it, 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 Although it was a wonderful job to do, because there was a, there was a huge quantity of passengers that I was asked to make, it could get quite tedious, so... Beyond, um, you know, sculpting sort of, uh, you know, characters based on, on those old film stars, I did go on to uh, create some characters of my own, just sort of putting little, you know, thinking about them as I'm sort of painting them up and sculpting them and everything, just to try and put in, you know, a bit of character into them rather than just sort of, you know, bland sort of, you know, characters. Instead of Passenger 1, Passenger 2, Passenger 3, you had, okay, this is David... He's a baker. <laughs> this is Jamie. Uh, she's a florist. And this here, it's little Timmy. How cute is he? You, 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 is it that, you've that kind of character creation? Yeah, you've definitely hit the nail on the head there. It just creates more <laughs> interest, really, and keeps you going, keeps you enthusiastic. I know this is a little bit of a segue, but um, was there a, a, a fair amount of crush or, you know, sort of, was there a lot of work to be done in a small amount of time on the show or...? Yes, there was really. I mean, a, a huge amount of stuff to be done. Obviously, we had, you know, the sort of the, the lead into into the, you know, what was required was the work we did on the initial pilot film. Um, that sort of got us up to speed, really. But, um, yeah, in general, there was um, a lot to do. But um, in many ways, it was made a lot easier uh, because Bob Gorgalias, is, is, I'm sure you, you, uh, you know, enjoyed talking to. He's a smashing guy. His designs, his designs were just incredible. And they, they just, he took obviously the essence of the books and, and turned them into uh, what would become the 3D versions of, of the, you know, characters and landscapes and buildings and everything. And in many ways, going by his, you knew not to go too far beyond what he'd drawn in terms of detail, um, because he just captured that feeling of sort of like realism and also the sort of, you know, the toy-like uh, feel. So, you know, you, you'd be putting rivets on something and thinking, well, let's stop there, really, because, you know, because to go any further would, would make this... It, you'd lose that flavour. So, yeah, yeah, we sort, of, we, we sort of knew when enough was enough, really, and just to hold back a little bit on detailing. OK. Uh, you, you mentioned Bob Gorgalias there. Um, when we interviewed him, 
He mentioned a practical joke that, that was played one day on set to scare Jamie Bowering. Have you got any other stories and anecdotes um, of these humorous incidents that occurred behind <laughs> the scenes? Uh, yeah, I suppose the uh, the first one that comes to mind was um, when I was making the viaduct for the first series. Um, another guy in one of the other sort of um, sheds um, was responsible for calculating the width of the tracks and how far they should be set apart from each other. And so I, I sort of was at that point where I, I needed to request the track dimensions off of him so I could work out how wide to build the top of the viaduct. He'd made a mistake in, in making his calculations, uh, which meant that, that you know, I, I built the top of the viaduct a little too narrow um, so that when the tracks were set on top on set, uh, they ended up being too close to each other. And uh, I wasn't on set when this happened, but I did, did hear from one of the guys that when it came to shoot that scene for the first time, I think it was Thomas and maybe Gordon or one of the other trains um, traveling sort of past each other from different directions. And there was a mighty crash. They crashed into each other because, as I say, the, the, the tracks were too close together. Oh, so, no. you know, there was, there was sort of a knock on the door and, you know, in came the, the, the viaduct and I had to very quickly widen the top of it, which was fine because you didn't really uh, see that much of it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was sort of pretty funny. But like all these things, you know, you want it to go well. You want your models to be seen in their best light and and you know things like that just you know they niggle at you a bit but it what in, in as the years have gone by i can see the funny side of it and it's the big reminder <laughs> to sort of go and measure things yourself really <laughs> what's the age old saying measure twice cut once that's right yeah absolutely yeah you were 99 percent of the work done on the creation of the viaduct and it's such an iconic piece. This is just me just being like a fan right now of your work because the viaduct, it has got such a brilliant look and style to it. It's by far one of, if not the favourite shot of mine from those early series of the show. So bravo, bravo to oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it, it's it's my favourite as well. I I mean, for me, I know when I watched the, the the first episode it appeared in, it was a case of you've gone from sort of like you know the, the odd landscape shot and sort of you know close ups of, of of stations and things, and suddenly we were like high up, wide angle view, just seeing Sodor Island from a distance, and it just yeah, the, and the lighting as well. I think it was sunset or or, or something. I can't remember, but it just yes, it had a certain magic quality to it almost storybook it was it's a storybook sort of frame leading on from that like i i feel that i'm assuming the viaduct is one of your favorite models from the show yes um was was there anything else through your career that you found was a bit of a highlight yeah um i guess uh, working on a lot of those tv commercials um they were a lot of fun and um I guess one other sort of uh, favourite model of mine that comes to mind was the um, the signal box, which which was you know again the setting it was placed in was was, was so nice, and uh, I just really enjoyed um, really enjoyed detailing that you know making its windows and the wooden staircase etc and putting putting all those little finishing touches on that that was I guess my my, my other favourite I worked on so yeah I love the brickwork on those the brickwork is just amazing 
I'm, I'm guessing it's a sort of thing where you picked out the individual brickwork um, in different colours and stuff. Yes, that's right. Um, it was nice, really, because, I mean, quite often you can build a model and it goes off on set to be painted or whatever. But in, in this regard, it was nice because I could build the model and paint it. Um, the only thing I didn't do was the ageing down, which was done, I think, by Bob on set or maybe one of his assistants, um, which was fine because that sort of stuff quite often wants to be done to camera. Um, but yes, it was just so nice, really, detailing brickwork and just getting the thing looking, looking, you know, really nice. Hmm. Is there anything you regret not having done for the show or anything that you would have loved to have done um, in the series? Not really, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I, I obviously built, you know, many stations and, uh, you know, all of the small scale characters. But I also got to work, you sort of like, you know, where, where somebody might be pulled off onto another part of the job, you'd be pulled onto their part of the job. So I'd be, you know, sculpting the, the, the sort of uh, landscapes and um, also doing, you know, other bits like the, um, the uh, on the turntable set, you know, making the, uh, the, the end, the, uh, shed doors that you know the green doors so yeah it was you sort of felt coming away from it and looking back you sort of felt like you touched almost everything on on that uh first series you know model wise even down to refurbishing uh some of the engines at the end of the shoot or or, or mid shoot if they were getting sort of damaged in any way so that was nice you know working on on toby replacing his bell and and cleaning it all up and repairing some of the damage that was that, that was great as well. So no, I sort of felt like I sort of got involved with with most of the model sets on that on that show, which which you know is is a nice thing to have done, really. It's weird to think because this entire podcast is, I like to think, a retrospective love letter to the show and and the work on it that's been done, and you can really see, especially with those early series, how human it was and how each individual part had been worked on and loved by some members or multiple members of the crew such as yourself after thomas you you went on to create many other things you did some album covers and so on but in the mid 90s you created and produced a preschool show called potamus park which centered on a family of Hippopot- hippopot- hippopotamus. That's a long word. Hippopotamuses. Family of hippos. Okay. <laughs> yes, a family of hippos. But what led to you creating that show? Well, uh, whilst at Clearwater, I um, was working with a fellow model maker by the name of John Lee. And uh, he'd come down from the north of England, and uh, I was obviously from, from the south of England. So we sort of met up and got on like a house on fire. And um, he'd just finished working on, uh, I think it was Jerry Anderson's Terror Hawks. So um, he was sort of fresh off of that. So he arrived at Clearwater, and we got on, as I say, like a house on fire. And um, like me, he wanted to one day make his own TV show. So we, we then formed Rocky Road Productions and um, we, we worked on many TV commercials. But in between those commercials, we were also trying to develop our own TV project. Um, and once we'd, we'd, we'd got that sort of um, pilot together, we sent that off to uh, a commissioning editor by the name of Michael Forte, who um, I believe was just about to leave um, Buena Vista, which was part of the Walt Disney Company. 
um, just ready to show him what we could do. Uh, we just wanted to desperately find, you know, find a way of, of, of sort of getting our own show off the ground. Uh, but at, at that point in time, he he was just about to join um, a company called Carlton Television, which is the London-based ITV station. And um, so he, he asked us to create um, what he considered to be um, ITV's answer to Teletubbies, which was a very successful BBC television show for children. Uh, so it was, you know, a tall order, but we sort of rose to the challenge and uh, he locked us in a room for a couple of weeks with another producer. And um, we came up with the idea of Potomus Park, which was all in all an amazing experience for both myself and John. Um, from my point of view, it, it was amazing um, by the sheer fact that we, we ended up filming it at Pinewood Studios um, over three years because it ran for three series. Which was incredible. 75 episodes, yeah? Yeah, 75 episodes, which was, um, you know, it, it, it nearly killed us all. It was, you know, really hard work because we were not only sort of, we not only created it, but we were writing it, designing it, producing it, um, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we were all wearing uh, many, many hats on that show. Um, but it was an amazing experience because as a kid, I, I'd literally, you know, catch the train with a friend of mine from school um, straight to Pinewood and wander around the perimeter fence, <laughs> just trying desperately. We must have been about sort of, you know, 12, 13, desperately trying to see any sort of filming going on. So we, we'd sort of, you know, wander around the perimeter fence and we, we eventually saw the uh, miniature crew filming the flying sequences for the original Superman movie. Which, oh, um, wow. Yeah, which was, you know, just an, an incredible experience. And, and then to sort of be driving through those gates at Pinewood, but with my own TV show many, many years later, was just, just amazing. You sort of you sense the passage of time and the fact that, you know, if you do have, have a dream and you work hard at it, you, you can achieve it. You really can achieve it. And that was, you know, all in all an amazing experience, really. Now, after your years in the film and television industry, uh, you've now actually become a really well-established artist who has seen work hung in Piccadilly at the Royal Academy, the London Art Fair, and you've also had a book published about your life in art, No Throw Row, um, The Art of Christopher Knowlton, and, and you, you've now moved on to another creative process. You've mentioned during the process of painting, you're building up the stories that are occurring for these characters in the scene within. Could you perhaps share one of these stories for one of the characters? Yeah, I get uh, my current series of paintings is uh, it features a group of uh, young ladies. They're called the Cutters, and uh, they are masters of, of paper cutting and and also origami. You know, the art of paper folding, etc. Um, and the the paintings are set in in sort of like a make believe village that I've had floating around in my head for, for many many years, and it's sort of partly inspired by, you know, the work on Thomas with Sodor Island, just that sort of made that made world. So in many ways, I've taken those experiences, and and they now feed into a lot of my paintings. So um, so these these cutter girls, they spend their time making life size life size paper effigies of people and animals. Um, that I guess to me symbolise, you know, the villagers that have either left the village or, or died. Um, and it's it's their way, I guess, of bringing them back to life, sort of like a resurrection of sorts, really. 
and, and the work was inspired mainly by, um, by a great painting by a 20th century English painter named Stanley Spencer. And one of his sort of most famous pieces is called The Resurrection Cookham. And um, it's just really had an impact on me over the years, that painting. So, so although the, the subject matter in my latest series of work it sounds a little bit sort of gloomy, it's actually quite celebratory, really. It's, it's in many ways not wanting to let go of the past, those people we've lost, you know. And, and it's sort of like an, a, an attempt to bring them back in some way. It, it's pure fantasy, but, you know, it's very, it's, it, for me, it's a very emotive subject with, you know, lost family members that you would just do, do anything to see again. So, yeah, that, that's sort of, they're, they're the series of characters I'm working on at the moment. And like all these things, they, they develop from painting to painting. One, one painting, you know, feeds into another one. And, and so it, it goes on. Mm. It's it's very honouring um, to the past and you know to to people that are long gone. It's yeah, not all, but most of your paintings, especially if there's a road there, is that there is a little red milk float, or sometimes green, but it's there's often a milk float there, and I have to ask about it because it appears way too often to just be coincidence. Yes, I, I, I guess so. Um, yeah, in many ways, the milk float is symbolic of my childhood, really, because um, a few days after, or sadly, a few days after my first birthday, my, my father died. Um, but a friend of mine who lived upstairs in, in, in the block of flats, um, Edward, his dad, Joe, was a milkman. And he was sort of almost like a father figure to me in many ways. And um, so quite often as kids, we jump on the back of the milk float and help him to deliver milk. And so um, that's sort of stuck in my mind, really. So, so it's my way, of, I guess, of paying homage to Joe and, and you know, the, the, the nice efforts he made to sort of, you know, help to um, bring me up. And, um, yeah, it's just really, in turn, very symbolic of, 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 I guess, the whole of my childhood. Now, you've mentioned in the past that one of the milk floats, Little Red actually maybe a bit more of a character and there's a bit more to little red um yes yes i was really tapping into that sort of um it, it's i think a very well for me a very british cliche and that is you know the milkman is almost like you know um a sailor that has a girl in every port you know so um and it's sort of yeah little red i thought, it, thought i would sort of you know try and expand on the theme of the milkman and just really try and weave a story around this this character um little red was originally the name of the milk float but then i thought well you could also have um a chap with 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 ginger hair with red hair who could be also be seen as little red um but yeah it's one of those things really i did develop it as a book but like the way these things work is you're working on two or three different projects at a time some make it, some don't. So, so sadly, Little Red didn't go beyond the, the concept stage. One of my favourite works of yours is um, you know, some of your photo manipulations back in 2015. Um, uh, you know, little kids playing with a, with a town as if it's a model village, you know. And there's a lot of like little nods to little things in the past, like the international rescue little headpiece on the, on the girl and... There's, you know, from what I can tell, dinky toys in the in, in there. Um, you, you've really looked closely at that, haven't you? 
yeah, you're, you're sort of you're remembering details I'd forgotten I'd even put in. Of course, yes, the girl with the uh, international international rescue uh, hat on. Yeah, look, I I love I love little references to you know vintage toys and stuff like that. You also seem to have sort of an interest in nostalgic stuff. Um, what's is there a value in that for you? Or there is that that it, it's so that the past is just so incredibly important to me. I know it is to a lot of people, but you know, work wise, it feeds into everything I do. Really, from photo montages to paintings, um, stuff like that. I mean. You know, I'm now a 60-year-old man, Mitch. <laughs> so, so nostalgia has has taken on, um, you know, a, a deeper meaning for me, really. Um, and it's funny. I was reading the other the other day about the Roman god uh, Janus, J A N U S, Janus. And it, at this age, you do find yourself becoming more like him in in so much as I mean, he's featured on on coins um, and in sculptures. Um, you know, looking looking back to the past as, as as much as he does forward to the future, and you sort of feel yourself becoming a bit like him, really. You know, um, you know, we we come from the past; it, it sort of shaped our future. So, yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time looking looking back. So, yeah, it, as I say, it's just so uh, important, and it does it does really sort of you know feed directly in, into the work I'm producing now, and and also for me the. The attraction, the main attraction for the past is that to a degree it's a safe and unchanging place. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, the, the present and the future isn't fixed yet. You know, it, it could, it could go either way, good or bad or whatever. But, you know, to a degree, it, the past is the past. It's not going to change. Yeah, the past, the past um, it's, it's so, a written story already. So you look back to Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the value. That's the value of nostalgia for me, really. Um, now, we, we've spoken about several things, Chris, throughout this interview. We, we've spoken about your childhood and the nostalgia around it, how you got to working on Thomas, how you got to working on Potamus Park. From the past to the present, a question about the future. Have you got any other plans uh, that we should keep an eye out for? So, well, I'm currently writing a book about my childhood growing up on a South London council estate called Charters Close. Um, and it's actually the estate that features um, in the photo montage at the back of my No Throw Row book. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just the most amazing place to grow up in, really. Um, it was sort of, to all tests of purposes, like a, a little village. And, and certainly... As a small boy, it was like a pocket universe. It's all I knew, you know, before, obviously, you know, I got older and started to go to school. So it had a profound effect on me. And, um, you know, the uh, the people that, that lived there, you know, this, the, the age old saying about, you know, you, in that growing up in that sort of community, you don't just have one mum, you have 10 mums because every other sort of friend's mother is, is your mum as well, keeping an eye out for you. So it was an amazing experience, really. Um, so I, I just, you know, having touched on it in the No Throw Row book, I wanted to really, um, you know, really expand on, on all of that. So uh, it's developed into an autobiography. Um, it sort of touches on time travel as well, because I, I sort of mm. I've sort of uh, 
wandered around the estate really taking notes as if I was a time traveler really just relating to what I see now in the present to what it was in the past you know um, just really reflecting on on past events and happenings that took place there and yeah that's 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 where it all started really I mean in terms of my career that's where I, I saw all the old Jerry Anson TV shows um, and that's the place where I made my first models um, so it's you know it, it's of great importance to me and and you walk around the estate now and and the place is deteriorating fast you know that the, the, the paint's peeling off you know that the, the brick walls are sinking back into the earth um you walk around there now and you, you know there's nobody around there that you really know so it's lost a lot of its character and personality and it's like you know as i say i'm 60 i'm not going to be around forever but once i'm gone i guess a lot of those memory the vast majority of the memories that took place on that, that estate will be gone and so there, I'm sort of very much driven now to somehow fix those moments in time and get it down, you know, in book form, really, so that it, it, it's something that, that exists. You know, it's just a worrying sort of feeling that those times will just be forgotten about, I guess. In you writing about it and editing it into your and putting it into your work, you're very much keeping it alive yes a, a lot of the work that we do will be around far far in the future which will mean that these memories uh would be preserved mm. it's one of those things that I, I i almost don't have any control over it i can't choose to do it or not do it it, it almost has to be done i am quite driven to to do this to get it all down uh, on paper really so that it can it can remain it's it's just nice to hear hear, hear your side of um, uh, oh, well your experience, Chris. It's um, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to to um, get this opportunity to share it with you. It's it, it's been brilliant to have you on. Um, now, typically at this point in the podcast, we we, we like to talk to both our guests and guest hosts to promote themselves, promote websites, socials, stuff they're working on? <laughs> well, I guess um, I, I constantly update my website. So as soon as a painting is finished, um, it's uploaded. Um, and um, you can find uh, find my website by going on to christophernorton.co.uk. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd love, love any of your listeners to go and have a look and, and see what I'm up to. Yes, and you'll be able to find the link to the website in the description of the podcast. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been it's been great. It's been very enjoyable. As always, it's now that time in the podcast where we showcase some music from the Thomas community. Now, since we've just been talking about the early years of Thomas, which of course started in the 1980s, we're going to be listening to an 80s synth-pop version of Shining Time by Lava Wax Records. This is the Right on Track Podcast.
That was Lava Wax Records Shining Time Pop Synth. My name is Connor Jonas. You're listening to episode 65 of the Right on Track podcast. And right now, Lachlan Kyle shall be interviewing Brendan Rise 10. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of my interview with Brennan Reese, where we will continue on our silly shenanigans and oopsie-daisies. But without further ado, let's just go right for it and jump straight in. This is part two with Brennan Reese. Going back to the Thomas movie, which is something you've been working on for a little while, uh, tell us about that. Currently, I've been kind of like a little upset with the way that the store I've been handling the story. So I've been slowly working on a revision of the whole plot where I'm reusing the previous draft um, that I currently did up with some of my friends. And that's being redrafted into a new script. And it's just it's a very ambitious project. So I'm making sure I'm going into this with like to make sure I can actually do this and then you know while when I finish the script and kind of just cut down what I can and can't do um with the budget and everything but because it's all coming out of my pocket I'm not I haven't asked for money for this project um which I probably should for this fan project but I have nothing to show yet so I should probably I should probably get on a roll with that and, and, and at least get some test footage out there I know this summer I am filming test footage officially, so that'll be really cool to to show that off and show people like what this movie could possibly look like. So that'll be cool, and people have been asking for updates forever on the project. So that'll be that'll be really nice and something the fans can look forward to. So and just anyone in general who's interested in the project, but uh, it's a pain. But uh, I don't think any film project has never not been a pain. It's just, I don't know, it's just, it's, 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 it got, it became a little too ambitious for, for me. And I'm kind of glad I took a small break from it just to come back at it at, from a different mindset. Yeah. But I'm happy. I'm happy. It's going in a good direction and I have a lot in store for people who are looking forward to it. It, it definitely seems like you're taking a much more careful approach to something that's going to be this big and this ambitious rather than uh, coming up with the first idea you've got and then just going with that. Oh my god, there have been so many ideas, but we're working with what we have, and then kind of, you know, exploiting it more. I can kind of, I can, I, I thought I'm, I'm a reveal here. That's fine with me. But we're kind of gonna reveal like Diesel Ten, uh, not origins, but more of a sense as in like making like an actual character rather than just a devoted bad guy who's just there just to cause trouble and, you know, screw stuff up. Just to make, just to give the steam engines a bad day, like he actually has like a like a reason. He has like motivations, which is always good. You always want your villains to have motivation. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 yeah, Diesel, Diesel's hand was a bit confusing with uh, Thomas and the Magic Railroad, and probably even Dale the Diesels as well. He's he's a very flimsy villain. I think. Yeah, I mean, he made more sense in Day of the Diesel than he did really in Magic Railroad because he just kind of showed up just to cause trouble. I know it was explained more in the original, but. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just weird. Magic Rebels is just another subject, but yep. Diesel 10 is one of those things where it's just, it was a very, I know Diesel 10 such a cliche thing, like a cliche, like, villain, but I really want to do something different with Diesel 10, and, but something similar, but something different. It, it's just, I want to do something that people have not really done with the character before. Diesel 10's just, he, he's kind of, not new game, but, or, or, or what the saying is, but he's just kind of like, he's an open book. 
it just, he just starves for more. There's more that can come from that character. Like, any character He's has been it. very vague throughout all his appearances. Yeah. So you, a lot of it's up to any sort of interpretation. Exactly. That's the best... That's the, the fun part about Diesel 10's character. Sad that he didn't... He got the... You know... Um, he got the end of the stick on uh, in the show, but it, the it, you know fans make amazing stuff anyway. So I mean, yeah. I guess it's up to the fans to save the to save the show, huh? That is correct. Yeah. What <laughs> techniques do you use for filming, and what sort of sound effects and special effects um, either you use in your YouTube videos and or we see we will see maybe in this Thomas movie. For for the movie, uh, I plan to go around it in a in a slightly different direction where I'm gonna go all out with these sets. Um, they're gonna be built on a much bigger scale. the The sets are gonna be a weird hybrid where um, there's gonna be some like digital um, effects, After Effects added to to make the sets to bring the set, make them more lively, as well as use a, a combination of CG and green screen to kind of liven uh the area especially the sky the sky is 100 percent gonna be a like photo realistic um digital and and an actual probably um real like recorded sky because the movie does uh, utilize live action it does take place in the real world so i have to figure out a way where i can combine the two and make it and make it work and i kind of figured out a, a little way where if Thomas is telling the story, it's kind of it kind of have it has more of like a storybook kind of feel where it is like the movie it, it is Thomas telling the story about the past and why he got to the where he is currently, and I, I figured out like why instead of trying to push extreme for the realism where where in Thomas is in the real world for all these other scenes it'll make sense when you see the movie, but where Thomas is telling the stories it feels more like you're watching a a live storybook where everything is realistic but it has that sense of like imagination to it where it's just like it could be it could be 100% photorealistic if I wanted it to but at the same time it's just like the, the people 100% will be live action like there's no going around it I won't use models for people oh I mean I think I'll probably do what Magic Railroad did and then they'll use models for like far away shots and shots that are really hard to composite for um human characters but most of the time the people will be real the faces will be animated they they will move their face their mouths and lips and their eyes they will be animated um through mixes of um cg and other means and yeah it's just it's a it's really weird because there's so many techniques that need that have to go into this but thank god i'm doing like test filming and stuff this summer to really figure out what i'm doing because the ideas are there i have done some testing but I, I these tests will really figure out what I'm really going in for for this project. It, it's very ambitious, so I have to kind of go around it in a way where I'm not I don't get over, I don't get like too stressed out and kind of back out, you know. Yeah, no, it, it, it sounds like it's going to be a big project. It very much is a big project because of the what I want to do. Yeah, and the things I want it to look like. Like I I don't want it to look like one of my normal videos just with realistic models. I want to take that and times it by like ten. And it'd just be something different. And trust me, I've been working. I've been working on this for ages. So once I get back into to the swing of really filming these, I just I want to surprise people. I want people to be like, "Wow, that looks that looks great," you know? Right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's just it's hard. It's a hard process. I, I reckon people are gonna love it. Like, it's gonna be something that, by the sounds of it, that uh, people have never seen before. Uh, the, like the the big probably the biggest thing 
the fan, like anyone in the fandom is probably done. I yeah, it's just I like I love talking about the project and then like and in making and I haven't really actually talked about it much for most of the time. Like I mean, I guess like through my, like my own like my social fees, but the project is very ambitious. I want it to be something surprising. I want it to be big. I want people to be excited and see this thing as like a, wow, this is this is a whole new step in, into like a different direction like that we've never seen before. And like we we have seen pretty ambitious Thomas projects, like especially like the Magic Railroad parody being one of the biggest ambitions that yes. we've ever seen so far. It's just I want to do that, but I want to do it. Well, I mean, my, he was that was that was wooden. These are with models, but you know, there's only so far you can go with with pushing people to be like, even if even if I'm using models, it's just like there's still models on a set. So I got to figure out a way where it's just I'm pushing it further, where your mind doesn't realize that these yes they are models, but it's just something more. Right, okay. You said you mentioned earlier that Thomas or trains in general isn't your it, it's it's like the biggest part of your interest, but it's not the only thing that you um are into. For my I have like like other interests. Like I, I like to collect I I I'm a collector. I like to collect um things. Um uh, mostly like, you know, like collectibles and, and action figures and so on and memorabilia. Um I have a pretty massive Godzilla collection. I love Godzilla and Kaiju films. I'm mostly, I'm a pretty big Godzilla buff. Um, I, I, I have, my collection has been growing and growing over the past few years, especially being, um, where I am currently and where I was and where I am and was financially, I was able to afford more things that I was able, that, that, uh, that I loved. And, um, the collection like tripled in size and it's like, it's massive. It, it, it's gotten a lot bigger. It's nowhere close to a lot of other collectors, but I'm happy with where it, where it is and where it is going. And I also, I, I love like transformers. I have a pretty big transformer collection. Um, I also love the video game series, Halo. I have so much Halo stuff. It's unbelievable. My room ha- doesn't even have, uh, a, not even like three quarters of my collection are at my house at my home. Most of it's back in storage just because I just decided to prioritize, uh, the, the, the two other, the three other hobbies I was talking about, like the, you know, the trains and transformers and Thomas, I mean, that, yeah, transformers, Thomas and, um, Godzilla. And I, I love video games. I love movies. Uh, I like writing as well. I don't do it as often, but I do have fun writing. Uh, I love, I just, I like filming videos too, but I, I just, I have a love for filming the trains because it's, it's miniatures. Miniatures are so much fun to film because it's just, there are ways you can go, especially like, you know, like in movies where you find out, oh, that was filmed with miniatures. It's like, wow, I didn't, I had no idea. You know, it's like, it's just such an interesting like thing to film. And I think that's what also gives me like my, my, my general, my, my rush and my, my love for filming. It's just the miniatures aspect of film in general, but. Those are just like I guess a taste of my other hobbies. It's just it's it's a lot, but to some people who are collectors and and and, and other things, it's they're probably like ah that that's nothing compared to what I have. I I like everything under the sun. <laughs> um, I understand as well. You have a big, just a big general Thomas collection of just all sorts of weird, wacky things. Uh, yeah, yeah. I got a. It, it's not like. It's a pretty big collection. Um, I was able to recently... I mean, like, I yeah, I do have a lot of Thomas stuff. Um, I I have so much in storage and in um, a shed uh, and in just under, and under my bed because I have, like, a loft bed. So um, I have, like, a storage under there of Thomas stuff and I have a lot of books, VHS tapes, DVDs. Uh, I've been buying up DVDs half the time just because I just see it. It's just Thomas-related. 
And I should probably stop doing that, but <laughs> I do have a big extensive collection. And recently I was able to acquire a Thomas Wooden Railway display shelf that they would have at the stores. And that thing has let me put a good chunk, if not what I want to display out and about. And I have way more, sadly, that can't be shown. But some of my favorites and stuff that I want to be shown are on it. And it has random bits and bobs from, like, Thomas, like a Thomas teaching clock to, like, (laughs) some of the older, like, push and pull, like, battery-operated Thomas toys. we got, like, you know, like, Bandai Thomas stuff. We got, like, I have this huge Mega Bloks Thomas um, that they released back in, like, 2016, 2015, just up there. And it's just, it's big. He's, like... If you wanted to, you could sit on them, like, that big. <laughs> I even have, like, this massive, like, Thomas, like, um, I call it, uh, I call it the beer light, you know, like, people have, like, guys will have, like, in their man caves will have, like, you know, like, the beer lights, the neon lights. Oh. It's not a neon light, but it's a pretty big Thomas light that just sits up, um, above the doorway, and it's just, it's just so random, and, and it's, but it's cool to have. It, 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 honest to God, it's cool. Yeah, you have a lot of stuff that even, well, I mean, I'm not that big per se, into the merchandising side of Thomas. But even stuff you wouldn't think of existing. Yeah, I, I, I try my best to get things that are uh, that are wacky, especially, like, whenever I get into a kick of buying Thomas stuff, I always look for, like, wacky Thomas stuff, like, like um, especially the Japanese stuff. The Japanese stuff is really weird sometimes, and uh, I have a literal pencil sharpener Thomas that goes on a bottle cap, and you just, and the pencil shavings go into the bottle, and I have never opened it. I don't plan to open it, but it's just one of those wacky things. And I also even found um, a Thomas light switch puller. You know, you just hang them on the light switch and you just click them on and off. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting that the things that you can find. Um, it, it, it's, just, it's just, and I think that's the cool thing about Thomas is that if you didn't think it exists, there probably is something out there that exists of that item. It's very much like, uh, oh, what was the comparison? I don't know, like a car, for example. Like, you put... You have your car, but then you put... For example, you put the logo on it, and that's what people want to buy it for. You have you have just the most random thing. You make it Thomas-related, and there you go. People want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen the most random, wacky Thomas stuff. I've, I have... I didn't even know these exist. I didn't know it was Japanese until um, after I bought it. But I have, um, for, they're for children. They're, um, um, it's Thomas chopsticks, but they're the, ch- they're the ones that are connected to, to each other. And on the end of the chopsticks, you know, at the, the top end, it's like a, it's James and it's like a weird 3D front end. And I didn't know that that was a Japanese thing because I think I saw Percy and Thomas ones recently. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that this was Japanese. And it's just a cool random item to have. And it's like, you know, it's like, what else exists of this? And I recently found, like, uh, uh, little rice shapers where you just, you push, like, the, you know, the sticky rice into, like, um, this little, like... Yeah, yeah. Like, kind of like a cookie cutter, but it's more of, like, a like a, like a a shape, like a shell. And it makes, like... I think I think it was, like, Thomas, Percy, and Harold. And it's just such a random, like, like consist. Like, it's just, like, why? <laughs> but it's still cool. Yeah. That reminds me. That I, I, I literally just remember the, the what is it? It's like SpaghettiOs, but it's in the shape of all the Thomas characters. Like, why does that exist? Yeah, but that, that was a '90s thing. Those are old. I have seen them for sale, but I just I don't want to like buy them for some reason because I just don't want to waste my money. I don't want to spend like twenty dollars on an old can of SpaghettiOs. So uh, one of these days, if I find one for cheap, maybe I'll throw it in the collection. But it's just so it's one of those random things. And even like Pillsbridge um, coaster strudels, I think had. Thomas shaped toaster strudels at one point. 
And I think that's pretty neat. And I, I wish that we, we did have more stuff of that recently. There was like, there was like, it was, it was fake, but like there was an Australia fake ad comp- campaign for All Engines Go. The, the where they had like the, the Thomas pizza and it looked disgusting, but I was just like, <laughs> man, I wish that was kind of real, you know? <laughs> I would have, even though All Engines Go is garbage, but dude, I would have bought that. <laughs> I would have been, I would have bought that too. It's just. I would have bought that too. It just—it looks like it's the show's garbage, but the the pizza looks like garbage. But I probably would have bought it because it had Thomas's stupid face attached to it. Yeah, and just, and just like kept the box or something, put it in a frame. I don't know. Kept kept a sample yeah, of the no self control. <laughs> Thomas the Tank Engine spaghetti shapes new from Heinz. Tell us about. Busted Buffers and who they are and what that was all about. Busted Buffers was a group uh, started by uh, Caleb, uh, Brett, and I. We were the we were the original kind of like founding members. And Busted Buffers was never like a thing where it was um, like a group, kind of like like a kind of like a social group where people could join. You know, if they if we wanted them to, if, if or if they asked. Uh, it was never one of those things. Busted Buffers was always a group of close friends, and it was us just deciding our channels are going in a way where we didn't want to upload certain content to it, and we thought, what if we made a second channel where it was all of us working together, even though we technically did all work together on our on our separate channels. It's just Busted Buffers was more of a way where we could all work together, like work work together, and make just random stupid stuff, even if it was just something that was uploaded by like per person. It, it, it would be just, like, commentary, which we haven't done, sadly, in a while. Um, and it would just be just random skits. Um, I'm going to call them poop posts, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they'd just be just random videos that would just kind of work for the channel. It was just, the account's just a random channel. It's a, really, it's a very random channel. But it has a very weird, like, consistency where sometimes, you know, some some weeks it'll be, like, very cryptic. And then other weeks <laughs> it'll just be us, like, making, like, a very, I guess, chill video. But it's just, it's videos that we didn't, that we kind of want to make for the channel. We could upload them to our, to our channel, some of the videos. But we feel like Busted Buffer's another place just to kind of have fun. And it's just us kind of coming together to make videos. And eventually, you know, we added uh, Thomas Tankman 111, James. He was eventually added... And the story behind him is really funny. Really quickly, uh, we saw one of his videos. We liked a specific shot that he did, and we're like, "We like him. We want to. We want him in our group. We want to talk to him." That's I. I kid you not. The reason why we wanted to add him, and after that, it's just one of those like I, I love all the busted guys. They're they're all like some of my favorite friends. Even though some of us don't um, talk as much anymore, um, what, you know, uh, uh, we have some people that have gone off to do other things. But we're we're all have been pretty consistent. We all still mostly talk on a regular basis, even though some of us have gone off to do other things. And like the same thing with Lucas, um, you know, uh, the train modeler. We we added him because we really liked his stuff. We wanted to talk to him, and you know, the friendship sprang from there. And so far, he's been the last member. And I don't think we plan to add anybody else because it's just it's just that solid of a group. Um, they're like they're my my closest friends. I consider them my brothers. And um, I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. The way that we met, I think, is just like some of the ways that we met were just really funny, and the reasons were behind them. But I don't know. Um, they're like I said, they're my best. They're my best, just best friends, and I, I love them to bits. They're my favorite. That's really sweet. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I would be here today if it wasn't for them. Oh, yeah, that's nice. 
Um, mm. Yeah, no, I, I noticed you, you, uh, it, it, it's majority of Buster Buffy. You, you guys spend a lot of your time like at, at the Strasbourg Railway, right? Yeah, Strasbourg is kind of like our shining time. You know, as cliche and as, as, as geeky as that might sound, it's just Strasbourg has meant something to us, especially during our, throughout our childhoods, with, um, especially during the fact that I've lived in Pennsylvania for most of my life. And that railroad has always been within like an hour driving distance. It's just, it is, it is, it's another home to me. And it has always felt like a second home. Uh, and especially to the other friends, they, they love that railroad, even if though it's a short line and it's mostly American engines and every now and then Thomas will pop out. It's just the memories and stuff that we have made there left an impact. And even on the people that work there and the surrounding places, they, they remember us and they have left an impact on us as well. And we hope that we left an impact on them. And even the people that have come to that railroad, there is never a dull day in Strasbourg. And we've had something to always talk about each time we go, even if it's just us bumping into another friend that we didn't expect to see there, or we saw something different. Like it, there's always something different every time. There's always a story to tell. And that's why I think we really love that railroad and why a lot of, a lot of other people can kind of agree to, to that as well. It definitely does sound like a very happy place there for you guys. It is. It is. It's one of my my favorite places to be. Uh, haven't been there in a while. Again, yeah, I haven't been there for a few months, but I hope to go back sometime very soon. I, I miss the railroad. Yeah, that that sounds good. Um, do you have any advice for younger people getting into uh, model railways, trains, things like that? Maybe even they want to start up their we their own weird and wacky collection of Thomas stuff. Yeah, in general, for like just Thomas in general, um, if you already have stuff, then you're already started for the collection. Uh, I'd recommend looking for eBay listings. Most of the time I'd look for, uh, if you want to really start collecting stuff, I'd look for like Facebook Marketplace stuff. I would look for um, like like yard sales. Uh, honestly, anywhere where you could find stuff for a good price, especially uh, thrift stores too and Goodwills, I- I'd recommend checking them out. Those are good places to find VHS tapes, DVDs. Every now and then you'll find like, you mo- most of the time I find modern Thomas stuff, but if you're really lucky, you'll probably find a bit of the old stuff. So I'd recommend if you don't, if you have to budget to work with, I'd recommend going to places where you might find something for a better price than like, say, I, I mentioned eBay earlier, you can find good deals, but um, better places than like eBay. I'd also recommend Macari as well. Macari is a great place to look at as well. Uh, if you want to start your collection, but yeah, you'll, you'll always find something cool. Even if it's something you've never heard of and you just kind of went, Oh, I want that in my collection. Buy it. it. I don't think you'll regret it. Well, maybe a little bit, but you know, you might not regret it. So for collecting wise, that that's what I have to say for that. Uh, for modeling, I'd have to say, the best way to get into the hobby is to get starter sets. Starter sets have always been, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's, the best way to segue into model trains. It'll really show if you want to get into this hobby. I know it, uh, starter sets are a little bit pricier than buying just a normal train straight out, but you get like the you get a train, you get lo- you get wagons um, or coaches, and you get track, pow- a transformer, and, and the controller, and sometimes other accessories and. There you go. You can start from there. There are a lot of Thomas Bachman Thomas sets you can pick up. Some sadly, some of the the ones with you know the the different characters are kind of discontinued. But even if you just want Thomas on his own, they're very easy to get into. And same with the N scale Thomas sets. Like they, it, it's 
I'd always recommend starting from a starter set. And then that's where you can build. You can build from there, buy more track packs to build, expand your collection and just kind of grow from there. And by the time you're ready to make your own like model layout, you know, you can go all in with that or you can ask for help from your parents or even friends and people don't, don't, I don't think people should ever be afraid of reaching out. Um, even just like on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube to, to anyone that they look up to, or just anyone in general for model railroading. Um, I I'd recommend just reaching out and asking questions. It's, there's no harm in it. And for, you know, the modeling aspect for getting into modeling, that's a bit of a different one. I'd recommend just getting into that by doing like, you know, like little touch up mods, like paint mods, you know, making the couplings, the right accuracy color, um, just maybe even doing like repaints here and there, doing little mods just to get into it. And then just slowly building up your, your confidence and your skill level. I, I would say never jump into a, a, a project too ambitious right away if you've never done it before because you could regret the outcome you might be happy with it but i also would recommend just kind of just taking it easy you know and, and then just taking things slow and then building your way up i did i did that um i did some ambitious things as, as a kid and still now that i probably regret but at the same time i'm not saying you shouldn't you know not like be ambitious with your project you should always be kind of ambitious because if you're not then you know you're never really going to grow but you should definitely go at it, you know, with a, with a very open mind, very, very positive, straightforward kind of thing and kind of work from there and then work with your, especially work with your budget. Don't do something, I guess, too stupid, you know, like um, chop up your Bachman Thomas, but then you do it wrong and you're like, oh, I don't have the money to buy like a replacement shell or something, but you know, go from there. And also there's 3D printing. 3D printing has become such a big thing in the hobby that there's so much out there that you can do like with the faces and with um and just with just the mods you can do in general it's just just build your skill level from what from where from what you currently have um ask questions watch videos and then just kind of go from there i'd also recommend real quickly while we're on the 3d printing project always go for at least the best quality or something really good you are not going to regret it even if it's if even if it's out of your budget just save up a little bit more it is totally worth that extra few bucks yes i can definitely say that as well i've got a few dodgy 3d prints of things that i haven't really touched but yeah um no that i reckon that's good advice um what can we expect to see from you this year um oh yeah thomas the movie is one of the big plans not for this year and I, I can say i can i can sadly say that the movie will not be coming out this year but i can say that there will be thomas the movie content in some way shape or form on all media platforms at some point youtube will get some stuff because i know youtube's starving for that um but I do have videos coming out this year. I do have original stories. I have a Christmas special coming out at the end of the year. I, it's not even a special, but it's, it's, a, it's a video. It's an episode. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's my own original story. I have a, another story coming out on my channel's anniversary this year in June. Uh, I have other video projects. I have a really big project that's coming up. I have some secret projects that you know about and a few others that I haven't. I can't really reveal. Um, I don't want to, well, I, I, I can reveal, but I don't want to reveal them just yet on, on, on the, on the podcast, but there is a lot of stuff in store. I have a lot of stories. I have, um, a lot, I have a lot more reviews in mind and stuff that I want to do with the channel. And then we have, um, even discussions I want to do. I have a whole video planned out for just Thomas plushies, just a discussion oh about Thomas God, plushies. Yes. Because that Thomas plushies is such a weird thing to get into. I've been collecting them in different kinds recently. It's just when you think 
you found them all. It's just they're just so much more. There, I, I it just never ends with Thomas plushies, and that's a fun. That's gonna be a fun video to talk about. But that that's I guess what people can kind of look forward to for my channel and busted buffers. Keep your eyes peeled. There's always something new. Good. Yes, it definitely sounds like you're gonna have a big year this year. Um, are there any other interesting things? Any tidbits that you can give give us before we finish up? I I think I can honestly um, safely say is um, people should and, and and I hope people some people can come out to the Thomas and his fans events, especially like the Northlands events, because we have plenty more coming up. There is one in May. So if people can make it out to that one, that would be awesome. It's just it's fun seeing more fans, and it, it's fun just seeing people get really involved with the hobby. Plus, you get to see people's customs, models, and uh, toys, and whatever in, in collections, and you get to see this massive, you know, huge layout. And then we also have like the Edison shows. We have literally um, this is going to be past the recording. This is coming out way later after the recording, but we have the Edison show in March. Um, in Jersey, and then we have the, the, the next one in August, and hopefully future shows as well. So if people can make it out to those shows, I, I would love to talk with you. I love talking. It might not seem like I am, but I do like talking. Um, I'm, 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 I'm way more shy in person, but I, I promise you I do like talking about uh, Thomas in my videos or even stuff that you've made and, and other people have made. I, I'm, an, I'm an open book. You can talk to me about anything. Yeah. Um, I, just, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just encourage people to come out to those events because it's like... I don't know. It, it's it's nice it's, and it's very helpful and it's really cool to meet all the fans. You know, those events definitely do look like a lot of fun. I, I, I really, I really want to have something like that here in Australia. I don't think we have as many fans. I know the Australia fan base is actually pretty big. I, I just know that yeah, it's just it's kind of it's very sparse because your country's like very. I think everybody's like mostly closer to the coast than they are you know like in the center so it's like it's pretty spread yeah i think there's i think as far as i know at the moment there's more fans in victoria where i live than anywhere else and i've mm -hmm. met a lot of these people as well it's always it's always fun to have a meetup of some sort but i reckon oh my god it'd be so cool to big old layout bring all your trains off you go have fun that's gonna that'd be so cool i really want to oh if I, if I could fly over to America right now, I'd, I'd go to Northlands, Edison, all that sort of stuff, just catch up with people like you and all the other people that have been there. Oh, and the props as well. Oh, yeah, we'll be having the... Hopefully, um, I think August, the we'll be having the tank merch. We'll have the props out there, and there'll probably be, like, maybe even proper replicas and, and somewhat will probably be out at the shows at some point as well. So that'd be really neat to have people be like, whoa, look at that. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the guy. That's the thing from the show. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all I really have time for. So thank you so much, Brendan, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I love talking about, you know, Thomas and in general. I don't, I, and like, um, it might sound a little, a little cocky, but like, or a little, like, I guess, self, not selfish, but I, I do like talking about um, my hobbies and interests and, and just like my channel in general. Like, I don't talk about it enough. And even to like, you know, the, the friends and, and the groups in general, I don't really dwell into it much because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bother people with that, but, you know, having me on here just, it, it let me kind of, you know, just like, you know, speak my mind and, and get all, you know, all this stuff off my chest. So it was very nice to be on here. I enjoyed it a lot. Where can we find you? Where can we follow you? What can we, how can we keep up with what you're doing? Oh, you can follow me on uh, both platforms, Instagram and Twitter under Brendan Reese 10 and on YouTube under the same name. That's uh, Brendan Reese 10 at youtube.com. Please subscribe, uh, like, 
can follow and I will probably not shout you out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm, 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 I'm just kidding. But yeah, you can follow me on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram under all the same name of Brendan Reese 10. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, it's been, it's been real fun. Right, it has been. I've, I've, really, I've really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure talking to you, Lachlan. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Lachlan and Brendan, for that interview. But now, I'm afraid it's that time in the show where we must say goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us on episode 65 on the Rotten Track podcast, and we'll see you next time. Adios. You've been listening to Right on Track. This podcast was hosted by Connor Jonas, Tom Parry, Lachlan Kyle, M. Taylor, and Tom Denham. The audio producers for this podcast were Jason Evans, Harry Hughes, Ashley DeGroote, and Frederick French Prouts. The supervising producers are Connor Jonas and Tom Parry. The executive producer is Tom Denham. Visit rideontrackpodcast.org for more information plus bonus material and be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast, on Twitter at OnTrackThomas and Instagram at Podcast. <laughs>